Oh, man. Woo! Hoo! We just, uh... We're recording a little intro post-interview. Yeah. We just had a, a very fun interview that uh-huh. you guys are about to watch. Yes, you are. And it's a little different than what we normally do. Yeah, we're upside down. We're hanging upside down. We are hanging from the rafters this entire episode. Uh, it was a test in uh, strength and dexterity. No, this was a... <clears throat> we had on David Dayen, who some listeners will know uh, because we... Or I talked about... One of my favorite books was Chain of Title about the 2008 housing crisis. Um, and a lot of people have actually DM'd me to say they read the book and they loved it. Uh, he is the executive editor of the of the American Prospect, prospect.org. Go check it out. But <clears throat> we are going pretty deep with him on kind of the economic situation. He's right. extremely knowledgeable Extremely cool. He's answering, oh, such a cool guy. So handsome. Very handsome. You're going to love to look at him. And he's got he's got tons of answers for us. We're talking to him about inflation, the supply chain crisis, will it ever ease? Yeah. Um, and he's just going super deep. We didn't even get to, a, you know, some of the things we wanted to talk about. We're yeah. going to, we're going to have to have him back because it was, uh, it was great. I, I, we, we both, after we wrapped it up, guys, we're just like, uh-huh. we want to keep talking. And we like... You know, I had to go into the bathroom and splash water on myself because I'm all. It was very, uh, it was very nice. So stay tuned for that. We got, uh, we got that. Also, not to, we can't forget Glenn. Hey, Glenn, Glenn's gonna be. We're gonna bring Glenn on soon. Oh, it's happening. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's gonna happen. We're gonna get Glenn on via Zoom, probably talk to him a little bit, interview him. Yeah, it's going to be great. So, don't you want to tell people to check the uh Oh yeah, so what you're going to want to do is check the disclaimer. It's in the description box. You're going to click more. You're going to see it there. You're going to read it. Does it even say see more though? It says see more. Button? It says see more button. And otherwise, also you got to What do people have to do? They got to subscribe. This is your daily reminder. Daily or weekly reminder. Hit like. me. Like, hit the like button as many times as you can. Make new accounts to hit it from new accounts. Subscribe. Oh, an important time to mention. We've got big stuff happening at 50K, which we're inching towards. Yeah, on the YouTube channel, 50,000 subscribers. We're going to smooch each other. 100,000. It is the partially nude calendar featuring just Emil's penis. That's the only part that's partially sure, nude. Sure, sure. Well, well, Yeah. We'll see about that. So we're getting close. And so, yeah. We're at 30,200 30, or something like that. 30.2, 30.3. So we're getting there real right. real quickly. Keep doing that. If you are <clears throat> if you are a uh, David Dayen fan watching us for the first time. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Good to see you. This is uh, perhaps the best finance-related, loosely-related show out there, right. podcast out there. We uh we we get into some, into some kooky stuff. Let me the, tell you, we we get a little crazy. The most the most popular comment we get is, "This is hardly a finance show." Yeah, yeah, but and that's the way we like it. That's what makes it fun, baby. Yeah, 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 bish. Yeah. So, oh, hey, I want to give a special shout out to my friend Patrick. Patrick. Whoa, whoa, whoa! We don't do shout outs on this. Show. Yes, we do. This is for my one of my oldest friends. We met in the second grade when he moved across the street from me. And we always fantasized about 
doing a string and can situation from bedroom to bedroom. Make it Never happen. did it. Couldn't do it. It's too Why? far. Too great a distance. But he taught me how to cuss. Patrick, you taught me how to swear, so that's why. thank you. That's why you're giving him a shout-out? No, because he said that he was listening to the show and that he listens to it regularly. And I said, oh, you're oh, so thanks, easy. Man. You know how many people tell me that? I go, I don't care. I'll, yeah, never, but I'll never mention also, you on the show. Also, I have so many people asking me, hey, can I get a shout-out? One cannot ask for a shout-out. Ooh, okay, I like that. I, I never, I'm like- You have to earn you it. You can't just ask you me have for to that. I'd it. constantly be going, okay, it cheapens it. Then I'd be going, shout-out to so-and-so, la 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 like- Yeah, but what, did, what did Jay-Z say? Closed mouths don't get fed. That's, yeah, that's what he said. Because your mouth is closed and you can't make room for the yeah, food. Yeah, but it was in... Um, Unless you're taking an IV. It was in reference to... Don't don't beg for it. No, but Kanye West was begging for it. He was advocating for himself. Oh. I thought they were friends. Oh, my God. So right. we're going to have a mailbag episode in two weeks. We're recording it next week. So go ahead and send your questions to trillmindhotline at gmail.com. That's, how do well, you spell we're that? we're going to put a little graphic up so you can see it, but for the uh, audio, yeah. Jesus, Ben. What? You were good when David was here. There was, oh, yeah, I don't I think there was even a burp. Not a burp. So it goes to show you can hold it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you can be on your best behavior when you're on camera. You just choose not to be. Uh, Which is great. Sorry about that. But so for the audio listener, if you want to ask us a question, all your burning questions, they can be about anything, really. Uh, Financial stuff, political stuff. You got uh, heartbreak or um, what else do people ask questions about? I don't know. All sorts of stuff. Uh, But also, please don't flood it with just like, do that thing be hanging because it makes it a pain in the ass. We appreciate (laughs) it and it's funny, but like... We're trying to dig through and get right. some... It's not only us, it's also our producers, and you're making more work for our producers. Yes. So, if you have a question, they can be funny questions, but don't spam us. Don't ask for a shout-out, okay? And that's not an inv- that's not like some backward invitation where it's going to be cute where we get the email and go, <laughs> they asked for a shout-out. Ben, I have a I have a feeling they're going to do exactly what we don't want them to do. God damn. Just- <laughs> and that's fine. We'll dig through them for you, but... We'd appreciate it if you didn't. Okay, so for the audio listener, you want to send us a question? That is T R I L L M I N D H O T L I N E. Are you going to spell Gmail too? At G M A A A. Wow. G M I. David Dayen, this is what you. G M. Thank God we didn't do this in front of him. Yeah. Trill. Trillmindhotline at gmail.com. Yeah. Send us your burning questions. Enjoy this episode. Uh, this should be the transition into it. And um, for the after hours, people, we'll, we'll see you in the uh, after hours. So hope you have a good weekend. Here's David Dayan. are just getting hammered this morning. Every day they're pounding it. Bit. I'm not fucking leaving. Does the prospect have uh, offices? We have offices in D.C., but since the pandemic, uh, most of us have been going remote. Um, and I have, you know, for a long time, even before that, I was, I was going to DC like once a month, 
okay. prior to the pandemic. But oh, so you didn't even live in D.C. before? No. Okay. Um, so since the pandemic, I've been back twice. I'm going next week, but uh, yeah, I haven't been back very much. Yeah, we've done 11 uh, issues of the magazine uh, remotely, and uh, that's the first time in the 30-year history uh, that, that any of it has been done remotely. So uh, we managed to figure this out. Yeah. So we're slowly shrinking our, our, our space in D.C. and therefore our rent. Right. How big is the team? Uh, we have 14 people. Oh, wow. I feel like we should give a proper intro to who we're uh, talking to. Who are we this talking is, to? Again? This is David Dayen, uh, the executive director of the American Prospect. Executive editor. Executive, executive editor. editor. Sorry. Sorry. I already fucked it up. The executive editor of the American Prospect, uh, which is... <clears throat> I love, I, I'm a daily reader. Uh, you guys should check it out. The prospect or prospect.org. Right. Also, longtime listeners of the show will recognize his book, Chain of Title, which we've talked about. Oh, great. And people have reached out and said, I love the book. It's great. He also wrote Monopolized. You can check that one out too. Mm-hmm. They're both great. I almost brought my copies to uh, get signed, but I was- Would have done it. I was worried I would look like a, like a nerd. <laughs> Um, no, you don't. <clears throat> in fact, the hair is flowing. You know. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, don't, maybe. Don't look bald at all. <laughs> oh, come on, Ben. <laughs> what are you doing to me? Thank you for hearing me. When I first came in, I just said, "Hey, nice yeah. to meet you." Can you just tell him that he doesn't look? He got bald? a little close talk, and he yeah. was just like, "Look, this is Sorry. what we got to do." And I'm like, "I know that I, that was probably pretty jarring." <laughs> yeah, Ben said, "I'm gonna go cut him off," and I was like, "I knew he did something stupid." Uh, uh, you know what it is? We've been doing this show for, what is it now? Almost. Six, seven months? Yeah. And uh, I wasn't used to seeing myself on camera so much. Mm-hmm. And you see all these different angles and you're like, what's going on <laughs> is there? Is that me? Yeah. So now you're self-conscious about things uh, that you never were before. That's I started true. I started moisturizing. You know, I'm getting a little older. I'm worried about- Well, exfoliating. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, ca- the camera makes you self-conscious. Mm-hmm. But you're used to this. You've done a lot of uh, show appearances. We saw that you were just on Sam Sater's show. Yeah, I do Sam a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was in TV for like 15 years before going into uh, uh, journalism. So, wow. Uh, yeah. How did I miss that? Familiar with the whole the whole deal. Well, in post. I was, oh. I was an editor. Oh, nice. Um, for quite a long time. I worked uh, in post-production too. Mm-hmm. Trailers. Yep. And I fucking hated it. You might know him from uh, messing up the Hotel Transylvania 2 trailer. (laughs) I do remember that. It's legendary. (laughs) Everyone knows that. So they were justified in firing me. Yeah. Oh, man. So how did you transition from that to what you're currently doing? Well, there were these things called blogs in uh, the early 2000s, and I got interested in them and uh, started my own. And it started off, I would you know, bring my laptop for work and I would do a little work uh, on editing and then maybe do a little work on the blog. And pretty soon it was, I would mostly do work on the blog and maybe a little bit of editing. Yeah. Uh, so it became clear that that was what I was more interested in. When was this, the early transitions. aughts? Yeah, 2004 was when I started my first blog. And, and at that time, if you were writing about politics online, you're part of a pretty small group and uh, you could you know, move through the ranks pretty swiftly. Um, young journalists asked me, well, how do you, how do you get involved in journalism? I go, take a time machine, go back to 2003 <laughs> and start a blog. Yeah. Right. And now getting involved in politics or in journalism rather is just. Start a stub- sub stack? Or yeah. Start a- I mean, it's, it's sort of come full circle with that, right. but I, there's so much noise. There's so many people doing it. It's, right. it's harder to get noticed. 
Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a little more difficult. Okay. So should we jump right into some of the stuff we wanted to talk to him about? Yeah. Let's dive right okay. in. Okay. Uh, so I think we've talked about it a bunch on our show. It's top of people's mind because it's affecting everybody in the country. Uh, things are more expensive. Uh, we want to talk about inflation. Um, Joe Biden just released an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal talking about his plan for inflation, which um, we will talk about. But before we even get to that, I want to talk about kind of what you what you believe is causing inflation. Because a lot of people, there's different narratives, right? Some people are saying, you know, like Larry Summers likes to say, it's, uh, well, we, you know, we gave too much relief to ordinary people and, and uh, now their wages are too high because of a yes. tight labor market. And Poor people have too much money. Right. Processes. And they're fucking they it up do. for all of us. They do. Right. <laughs> uh, they went on that Christmas shopping spree and right. fucked up the whole supply chain. Um, yeah. Some people are saying it's a su- supply so chain. Stupid. Some are blaming it on corporate greed and um, price gouging. But so <clears throat> what's the what's the truth here? Well, I mean, I don't think it's any one thing. Right. Uh, but I, I mean, I think a few things are clear. So... Uh, The pandemic obviously was a major shift in terms of uh, first production in China. There were just uh, at the outset of the pandemic, there were fewer companies uh, making their goods. Uh, Then there was this goods mismatch when we when when America, it started hitting. Obviously, you weren't going to bars, you weren't going to restaurants, but you had all this other income, especially because the Government was pretty generous at that time. And so you were buying more goods rather than services. And so that mismatch led to a a jump in uh, uh, the the amount of goods that needed to be transported from overseas and get to stores. And this hit a a, a very uh, longstanding lack of resilience within the way that our commerce system is structured, uh, such that any small increase in the imports that we need was going to overwhelm the system. Mm. And we knew this, and we knew this going back. We did a a special issue on this about the supply chain uh, back in February. And one of the stories we did was about this memo that was written by the Federal Maritime Commission. This is the commission that oversees ports in the United States. And it was written in 2005. And this said, well, here are all of these factors, X, Y, Z, and Q, that uh, are going to lead to an overwhelming situation at our ports if there is an increase at at any level in the amount of imports that need to come in the country. And all of it came true. <laughs> so like we knew for well over a decade that if you increase, because this this uh, thing was written actually in response to the expectation of more trade deals uh, with Asia, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and things like that. Um, it might have been 2015, might not have been 2005. But anyway, um, it said, yeah, if we have more of this, we have these mega ships that go around the world uh, only a few ports in the United States can even handle them because they've gotten so big uh, because of the consolidation of the industry. Uh, this is going to lead to bottlenecks, particularly at the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach, which 40% of all imports come in from. And uh, we're going to have big problems. And it's going to be a, a supply shock to the system because we're simply not going to be able to get these goods out to stores, to online shoppers, where uh, uh, consumers can get a hold of them. And that's exactly what happened. 
we have had a severe capacity restraint in the United States. Um, there's there's more than one factor than simply our shipping and logistics systems. There's also the fact that uh, a lot of uh, managers uh, assumed that there would be very low levels of demand for a going forward period. So they, they ordered less goods than they needed. Hmm. And uh, this was particularly true with respect to semiconductors. There was just an expectation there wouldn't be a lot of cars that would be purchased in 2021 and 2022. And when demand actually rose up, because we did a, a decent job of, of uh, you know, getting relief out to people, uh, there weren't enough semiconductors to put in these, in these autos. And pretty much every car made now has a number of computer uh, chips and, and things that, that need to make it run. So uh, uh, that led to a drastic shortage. But the, the sort of overriding thing behind all this, I think, is that for so many years now, we have had all of these factors, whether it was uh, outsourcing and centralizing production in one part of the world, which magnifies disruptions when they come, uh, monopolization of key nodes, including in the shipping industry, uh, where the the top ocean carriers is basically three alliances. Oh, yeah, we want to cover that. Yeah, three companies. It's not three companies, but it's three conglomerations of companies right. that uh, control pretty much all global shipping. They soared prices for taking a, a good from Asia to the United States about tenfold uh, from in the year 2021. Uh, you had deregulation of all these things that was intended to uh, uh, make things cheaper, but also uh, created a lot of bottlenecks because there weren't enough people willing to do the job at the low wages, for example, in trucking. Uh, there were demands of capacity uh, constraints to raise prices in the rail industry. Um, that was, uh, you know, sort of the, the the role of financialization. And then there was this thing called just-in-time logistics, which is uh, for you know several decades, uh, companies said, "What we want to do is get the goods off the ship and get them into the stores, so that we don't have to hold on to them." Uh, and buy warehouse space and waste money. Uh, we want to just get them off the ships, get them into the stores, get them in the hands of people, and smooth this through, make it as efficient as possible. Again, creating whenever there's a disruption of getting the goods into the stores, there's no slack, there's no inventory, there's there's there's, there's no warehouse space, there's no space right. to yeah. to get into the system. So all of these things created and introduced hidden risk into our production systems. Uh, that was completely unprepared for something like a global pandemic. And so my view is that that is the primary driver of inflation in the U.S. and around the world. Because, I mean, what we saw just this week is that Europe's uh, rate of um, inflation is at 8.1%. Right here in the United States, we're at 83 So now they're starting to converge, right. whereas the U.S. historically has had higher uh, inflation than Europe, and certainly during this, this pandemic time has had a slightly higher inflation. Um, a lot of that is due to energy prices spiking uh, because of the war in Ukraine, but that is just a capacity constraint of a different color, right? I mean, it's, you know, just as the pandemic created this supply crunch, 
so is the war, which is just another disruption that you can have, whether it's political unrest, climate change, which created a lot of problems in the supply chain over the last year. The Yangtze River was shut down at one point in China, which was a real hampering on production. At uh, another stage, there was a heat wave there. And and because of the way China's electricity system is conducted, they shut down factories because they were using too much electricity. So that was another supply constraint. Uh, You know, our, our system is just very brittle because there isn't any redundancy in it. There isn't any slack in it. Right. You know, Joe Biden said, though, that it, this is all Putin's fault because, <laughs> well, that I'm joking. I mean, I I mean there's there's some truth to that. Yeah, right? yeah I mean, sure. Obviously, the invasion of Ukraine uh, has created real problems in two areas. One is energy and the other is food because right. Ukraine uh, produced a lot of wheat. It was kind of the breadbasket, uh, particularly of Africa uh, and a lot of other uh, places around the world. Right. And so what prices are we seeing rising more than anything else right now over the last three months? Food and energy. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there is certainly, uh, I mean, you know, I guess Putin's price hike kind of as messaging fell over like a lead balloon, but there is truth to it. Sure. And then, it, depending on who you ask, the Fed is responsible for all of it. And I fell into that camp, honestly, because I'm like, you inject all this liquidity into the markets and all of this, uh, print all this money. Right. I'm not one of those guys. Who, I mean, I'm, I'm not. Because there's those Fed guys. I'm not one of them. I'm but. not saying that the hypothesis, which is pushed by people like Larry Summers and Jason Furman and uh, Catherine Rampill of the Washington Post, I'm not saying that that is... Uh, Completely not a fact. Sure, but it's not the entire. People who have studied it, Federal Reserve analysts, things like that, they can't find more than one or two points of inflation to be attributable to the overheating economy. An overheating economy, which, by the way, uh, still has not reached levels uh, on employment or growth uh, at the pre-pandemic level, right? Mm. So uh, what is this overheating is, is one question you would ask. But you can't find a whole lot more than that. It's more of the mismatch, like there are more more, more spending going to goods than services, which is now starting to flatten out as people get, you know, back into, into the world uh, after, you know, I mean, not that the pandemic's over, but people think it is. So, you know, obviously we're seeing service uh, uh, spending going up. Yeah, and e-commerce sales just took a little dip. That was one thing, um, one graphic that we showed from Fred is that steady um, Mm -hmm. percentage of e-commerce as a percentage of uh, retail sales and then this big parabolic swipe up and now it's kind of a tapering off. And that all needs more logistics, right? Right. If if you're, instead of sending stuff to a store, making people go to that store and take it home, if you are saying, okay, every single thing that you buy, we're going to deliver directly to your door and we're promising to do it in 24 or 48 hours. Yeah. Well, you need to get all the stuff over from, you know, where it's produced, mostly China. Mm -hmm. Uh, You need to get that stuff off of the docks onto rail cars. Sure. Uh, you need to get it into warehouses and you need to get that the, the warehouse goods uh, into people's hands for the last mile. And all of that is, is screwed in the United sure. States. Like if you look at every single one of these industries, there are significant problems caused by deregulation, financialization, monopolization, 
uh, and uh, an outsourcing and centralization of production. When you say financialization, what does that mean? Well, I mean, uh, uh, in the context, uh, particularly of the rail industry. So Wall Street has dictated the ways in which uh, a lot of our production system runs. In the case of rail, uh, there's this thing called uh, precision uh, rail. I, I don't remember the exact name of it, but it's something like precision rail structuring or something. And what they say is that we want to use less capacity because we want to reduce our labor costs. We want to reduce our maintenance costs. Uh, juice those margins. Juice the margins. And uh, what we saw during this supply crunch is, and there are only, you know, four major rail companies in the United States, and two are in the East and two are in the West, so you really have two duopolies. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, during the pandemic, during, during this time of a supply crunch, they were reducing capacity uh, because they didn't have the manpower to actually run it. Um, and that was a, a real uh, factor of, I remember what the name is, Precision Scheduled Railroading, which was Wall Street explaining that uh, we don't want you spending money on slack capacity, on, on redundancy, on extra uh, uh, opportunities in case of an increase in in production and, and, and distribution. And this was this was a specific, a uh, uh, strategy mm -hmm. uh, by uh, mostly by investors placing that you know discipline, and we see this in other industries too, right? You see it in airlines, like with you know what they call capacity discipline, which is that everyone in in uh, the, every seat has to be filled on that airplane. You know, we can cut routes, but every seat has to be filled, and that you know reduces slack within the system. Now, obviously, airlines aren't aren't transporting cargo, although they were a little bit during the pandemic. But uh, but the the analogy to railroading is saying that you can't have any slack in the system. Well, goods increase by twenty percent that, that we have to get across. Well, tough. I mean, they're going to sit there, and therein we have our supply problem. Interesting. And so uh, Larry Summers, with him blaming everything but the supply chain, you had a, a fun article in the New York Times about mm -hmm. uh, kind of talking about his hand in all of this. Yeah. Um, can you explain that a little bit? Wait, for, for the uninitiated, Larry Summers is? He was a financial advisor with the Clinton and Obama administrations. Um, he was the Secretary of the Treasury under Clinton, and prior to that, he was uh, Undersecretary for International Finance. He was the head of the National Economic Council under Obama in the first term. Um, and and he yeah, sucks. <laughs> and and yeah, I mean, he all of the things we've been talking about monopolies, uh, outsourcing. Um, uh, you know, I believe you uh, guys called glo globalization. I, I think global it was trade. you guys who called it the neoliberalization of the supply chain. Right. Uh, yeah. All of that. <laughs> all of that. Larry Summers championed when he was a top policymaker and responsible for making a lot of these decisions. So Do if you think he, he did that due to pressure from uh, big Wall Street interests, like why? What was his incentive? Did he think that he was doing good? I mean, uh, one time it was explained to me uh by a, a pretty senior policymaker, mm -hmm. progressive policymaker, that, um, you know, this person said, I get up every day worrying about the middle class. And Larry Summers and Timothy Geithner, who was Treasury Secretary under Obama, 
they wake up every morning worrying about Goldman Sachs. Mm. There was a belief that what's good for Goldman Sachs is good for the rest of the country. And uh, these policies, these, you know, these policies of neoliberalism, which were in, in large sense architected by, by people like Larry Summers, um, are, are seen as the best way to build growth, economic growth, and, and, and be the rising tide that lifts all boats. Also, can't they? Um, so, I mean, that's before. their that's their theory sure. of the case. Can't they obscure it with you know saying, "Well, this keeps prices low. Everyone's happy when the prices." Well, absolutely. Are low. I mean, th that was the trade off. The right. trade off was we are going to hollow out the industrial base of this country. Uh, we are going to deregulate all of these uh, nodes of shipping and logistics. We are going to chase the lowest cost labor we can possibly find. And if it's in one part of the world, we're going to exploit ruthlessly mm -hmm. that one part of the world. And uh, yeah, in exchange, you're going to get $5 tube socks at Walmart. I feel like right. I feel dirty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, really? Wasn't, is, wasn't there, there was a CEO, I'm blanking on who it was. He said that the ideal- Jack Welch. Jack Welch, what, GE, said the, the ideal- like Island. The ideal uh, manufacturing facility would be on a barge so I can move it to whatever country has the, the best deal for me with low labor and environmental costs. Hell yeah, baby. <laughs> Beautiful. Yes. Just and so that was the, the dominant philosophy sure. of both parties, really, uh, from, you know, the, the Clinton years uh, on, uh, on up. And uh, so if we're talking about inflation and, and who's the cause of it, Larry Summers should step up and say, I'm, I'm the cause of it. I'm, well, I'm one of the It's causes. much easier to say it's those goddamn working people with oh, too yeah. high wages. Well, it is the working people who want the $5 right. tube socks. But and this is a challenge to Larry Summers. Get your ass on this show. <laughs> we got a bone to pick, pencil neck, you fucker. Anyway, sorry. So, yeah, I mean, uh, and, and now he is out there saying in, in a bit of coded language that Wages have to go down and unemployment has to go up. Right. And that's, I mean, the, the way in which uh, the federal, something like the Federal Reserve deals their mon monetary policy to fight inflation is they raise interest rates. Right. Uh, that's a very kind of anodyne way of saying, you know, what is that supposed to do, right? You raise interest rates, you're supposed to make it more costly to invest and uh, to run a business, mm -hmm. uh, therefore, uh, those businesses will uh, not grow and lay off workers. Those workers will have less discretionary income and also be more costly for those workers to borrow mm -hmm. uh, or those ordinary people to borrow, whether it's in mortgage markets or personal loans. And uh, everyone will has le have less money and then demand will come down to a level that's commensurate with supply, so uh, this is a a deliberate policy of demand destruction. Uh, uh, the last time that we had a serious effort from the Federal Reserve to tame inflation was in the 1980s, and it was Paul Volcker. The Volcker shock. The, the 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 Volcker shock. And Paul Volcker, in a congressional session, uh, said and was very honest about it: the living standards of the average American must go down. That was his plan to fight inflation. It's that the same. It's the same plan being used today. Only they don't say it so directly. Right. Uh, they they come close. I mean, Larry Summers has said, uh, you know, we need lower wage growth. 
We need lower, uh, you know, we, we can't have an unemployment market that, or an employment market that is this, this tight. Uh, but if you sort of dig into exactly what he's saying, what he's saying is you can't have uh, uh, unemployment rates under 4% with uh it's 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 not uh acceptable with inflation uh above uh four percent and what he's really saying is more people need to be unemployed hmm. but, right so even but even the fed is <clears throat> they're trying to tell this line of we're, we're aiming for a, a soft landing i think right. saying. or and I which think is they... a noble idea but uh what nobody has been able to tell me is how will raising interest rates end the war in Ukraine, which is responsible for this supply constraint that is shooting up energy prices that, frankly, is the major component of inflation right now. I right. actually, I wanted to ask you. Uh, do you, you have an answer for that? No. <laughs> because there isn't one. Right. Poison bite. How, how, will, bite. how <laughs> will raising interest rates end the lockdowns in China that are stopping production? Right. Uh, you, you seem to be fighting a supply problem by totally crushing demand. And that will probably work, but we're all going to be collateral damage. Yes. Uh, a couple things. I really want to dig into just how much influence Wall Street increasingly has had over the past couple decades, just lording over everyone's lives. And part of that is due to um, the increase in people passively investing in index funds and their 401ks and stuff. So it's in everybody's best interest now for stocks to stay high, so Goldman Sachs kind of won in that sense because they, they kind of got what they wanted. Now we're all, this is us on the teat, you know, my juicy rack. Um, <laughs> hey, it's your fault you said you would come on here. Uh, so, but the other thing was uh, energy prices, gas prices being so high, mm -hmm. it feels like there could be so much more done stateside that is outside of uh, Putin and the war in Ukraine because it it can you can you touch on that about how the oil companies are just so fucking greedy <laughs> and how because uh, I'm, well, I'm very well, this is this is very interesting and it plays into your your point about Wall Street <clears throat> because that's actually what's really going on here. Right. So in the wake of uh, us cutting off Russian oil supplies and obviously oil prices spiking in uh, during the, the Ukraine war, uh, one of the uh, options that has been put out there is that, well, why don't these uh, domestic oil companies, which have been, uh, you know, we're supposed to be a net exporter of of energy at this point uh why don't they just raise production and and everything will be fine and it'll compensate for russian oil uh losses uh of which we don't even use that much we use like you know five percent of total u.s resources are from russia why don't we do that yeah um well uh <laughs> what happened was that uh over the decade when sort of the fracking boom occurred uh, more and more money was put into fracking uh, to more exploration, more investment, finding more fields. And uh, there was a very uh, boom and bust cycle. And the money that was used for re uh, the, the revenues that were gained from actually producing oil did not go to investors. They went to more and more. Uh, uh, they went to more and more uh, uh, capital expenditures. And. 
investors weren't happy about this, especially no! <laughs> especially after at the beginning of the pandemic. You might remember when oil prices went negative yep. for a little while. Oh, yeah. Um, everybody lost out. There was this huge bust out and uh, uh, a lot of consolidation in that industry. But investors made the decision at that point that, OK, when this market rebounds, we're not going to be that stupid anymore. And what they mean by not being that stupid is that you're not going to invest anymore in more production. We are going to keep prices high so that we can get dividends and buybacks out of it. And uh, uh, we, we do not want to see major capital expenditures in uh, U.S. domestic oil production. And so when the prices rose, you have all of these like uh, uh, investor calls with uh, major oil companies, major fracking companies, domestic oil producers who say, well, our investors won't let us produce more. We're, we're, we're not going to do it or else our stock would go down. And, you know, the ways oh, in which no. CEO uh, compensation and, and stock price are, are inextricably linked. So uh, the better the stock performance, the better your performance package. Exactly. So uh, we are in a situation now where Wall Street essentially is saying that uh, you're not allowed to produce any more oil. You're, you're going to keep your, your production flat. We're not going to do more investment and uh, prices are going to stay high. But those are the breaks. Is there anything the government can do to just say, fuck your dividends, fuck all of this? The American people are suffering. Like, this is insane. Right. Yeah. We all see the stickers of, of people putting things on that's a, with Joe Biden saying, I did that. Because, yeah, I mean, in can, a roundabout way, it's kind of his fault because, like, stand up to these these companies. Right. Is there anything that can practically be done? Well, I mean, it, it is a difficult scenario sure. for when, when you're in government. It's not like government can, can force oil companies to produce, you know, the, the nature of the market is going to be that then, you know, a lot of investors would withdraw funds. There are some things that can be done. They're a little technical, a little wonky um, around the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Right. Um, you could sort of use that as a market signal and say uh, to, company, uh, to, to oil companies, well, you know, we just let out all this, uh, all this oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We're going to refill it, and we will give you a guaranteed high price for that refilling, and uh, but only if you produce enough so that we can get that back. And so you can sort of create this market out of the SPR. Uh, uh, there's a, a group called Employ America that has done some some work on this, and it it could work. Mm. Um, uh, the release of the money doesn't doesn't have as as much impact if you don't have an advanced market commitment and say yes when it when you know uh, make more and we will buy it and we will give you a floor under your prices so that you know it, presumably at that point investors are saying okay well we know we're going to make back this money the revenues are going to be high and uh, okay go ahead and produce and 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 we'll allow it. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, let's get into some of the things that can practically practically be done because we have uh, we've been reading Joe Biden's domestic terrorism. <laughs> ben, come on, we have a guest. Uh, so 
We're huge Timothy McVeigh fans. Or not Timothy McVeigh. <laughs> Timothy What's McVay. the other guy? The guy who lived in the... in The, the Unabomber? Yes, the Unabomber. We're not. Ben, we're oh, my God. About the Ted, Jesus. Ted, Ted Kaczynski. Kaczynski. Thank you. We're going to oh. put him back there. Uh, so Biden laid out his plan in, in this op-ed, which is not much of a plan at all. He kind of... I mean, it's not a plan. He said, <laughs> you know, right. I think... It's like the Fed, the Fed can do what it wants. Right. His first plan yeah. was, I'm not going to... And then everything else are things that Congress would have to pass. And, and you know, how good is Congress at passing? Right. So good. So he's going to leave the Fed to do it, and he hopes that Congress will do something about it. Um, And so just with that, you know, how much should, how frustrated should we be with the Fed? I mean, I don't, you know, they're they're the only ones we're giving any responsibility to it. I mean, that's the problem. So, And and what... What does Fed the Fed have? They can it has only a big interest. button yeah. that says up or down on interest rates. It's a very brute force right. uh, way to manage inflation. They, they don't have a whole lot of other options. And so that's what they're doing. Right. The book says, you know, if there's high inflation, you raise right. the interest rate and, and that'll that'll fix everything. So and, they're going by the book. Um, I think there are some other things that can be done. Um, by through, the Fed? No, by by the Biden administration gotcha. through through administrative policy, um, you know, cracking down on these exorbitant shipping fees, um, and the Biden administration, to its credit, has said that they they are interested in doing that. Um, there was more money made in 2021 by this conglomerate, uh, the set of of three shipping alliances. They made more money in 2021 than they did in the years 2010 to 2020 combined. Good God. In one year, they made <laughs> in one year more than a decade. Than, than the previous decade. And the first quarter of this year, they were on an even higher trajectory, made $60 billion in the first quarter of this year, the shipping industry. Wow. And uh, so a lot of that money... Is coming in because you know the spot rates are very high. Um, everybody wants to sell their goods. Everyone wants to move their goods, and so you know supply and demand, the rates go up. But some of it is because they 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 lard on these different fees onto cargo owners. So we have these clogged ports, for example, right? They have these things. I think the specific name is called demurrage and detention fees, but I will just explain what the fees actually are. They're like Ticketmaster fees. <laughs> it's kind of. I mean, so what they say is, well, we're going to charge you, the cargo owner, a fee until you get your stuff off the port. Now, your stuff is stacked under 17 containers, and you can't physically get it off the port, but you're going to be charged a fee until it goes away. Oh, and the shipping companies get that. Yeah. Same with the containers. They charge a fee for the shipping container uh, to get back to where it, it needs to be. And their but, justification is that there's so much demand for these containers. Hey, yeah. we can't send it out because you're using it. So we're going to charge you a fee. The, meanwhile, the containers also are stacked. Sure. Like, there's no way to get the container out. Yeah. But they're charging you a fee to get the t- container out. So. Um, there is an effort to look at those demurrage and detention fees, to look at contracts, uh, how uh, 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 shipping companies are raising rates. Uh, and I think that could have some some impact. Uh, and the another, Biden administration can do that without... Well, it's, the, it's part of their oversight function, <clears throat> yes. Uh, there's, a, there's actually a bill called the Ocean Shipping Reform Act that would give more teeth to uh, the regulators. Uh, it passed the... Uh, not many things do this, but it passed the House with well over 350 votes, uh, and it passed the Senate by voice vote. It's now part of a larger bill 
that they're being negotiated in Congress, but it could pass within the next month or two. And uh, so so then then the regulators would get additional authorities there. Another thing that can be done, uh, the angle we haven't talked about, which is the sort of corporate greed angle, which I do think is responsible for at least some of the things that are going on. You see these companies on conference calls say, uh, this is great. We can raise prices <laughs> as high as we want. And nobody, the consumer keeps coming to us yeah. uh, because there's a lack of competition in the industry. And if you have a basic good that everybody needs, you can raise those prices and, and people aren't as price sensitive to it. Um, you right, can do things that. with the antitrust authorities to crack down on that, uh, particularly in the, the meatpacking industry where, uh, uh, you know, meat has has been the main driver of food price inflation. Um, some of that is because uh, meatpacking plants were shut down during the pandemic uh, because of you know large uh, incidences of COVID. Uh, but uh, a lot of it is because we don't have enough meatpacking plants, and there are like three companies that control eighty percent of all beef and seventy percent of all pork processing. And there's this bottleneck there, uh, this narrowing effect. I'm starting um, to sense a trend. Yeah. Yes, and they're actually buying very low from ranchers the the raw material, the actual cattle and and hogs and things like that. But they're selling very high to uh, uh, to groceries and capturing the spread. And when Biden actually started talking about this at the beginning of this year, uh, you saw that spread drop a little bit. So it was even just the, the, the bully pulpit and just, just calling this out had an effect. Hmm. And uh, a proper regulatory action, they're, they're doing some things uh, with regulations at the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, to crack down on on you know unfair competition in the industry and things like that that could also have an effect and what about something like uh an excess profits tax well i don't think it's going to pass it, right. it's certainly something that has been introduced and we called for it actually in march of 2020 like right after the beginning of the pandemic uh we had a piece uh by a, a law professor at the university of michigan who said it's time for an excess profit tax we had one after world war one and world war two uh in to, march of 2020 yeah that's when we kind of saw it. what was coming yeah exactly wow. you guys um, are good at that i mean I'll t- like <laughs> we try I, I read the supply ch- not i didn't get the physical issue but all mm-hmm. of the pieces yeah. online the supply chain stuff and you know you guys were talking about how this is going to continue until these supply chains are are fixed and and made uh less precarious and prospect.org slash supply chain it's great it's great um but we continue to see these things, even as people were saying, oh, the supply chain is going to start to ease. It was just this uh, pandemic crush. Um, and now we're seeing it with very important things like the baby formula so- shortage. Yeah, which is a whole other story in in and of itself. Can I ask of, you a question about that, that? The way that market is structured. So yeah. that is something that the, those baby, because I think it was one plant in Michigan. Sturgis, Michigan. So that is something we are not... Um, reliant on for overseas there's no overseas production but there's very centralized production okay. so that plant that you talk about that abbott labs put uh, together in sturgis michigan is responsible for about 20 percent of the total baby formula supply in the united states one plant so when that plant goes down we have a problem right and the way that the market is structured is the main problem here so um there are about uh, four, but there really are two main infant formula companies uh, that serve the United States. There's Abbott, 
which is a big conglomerate that makes medical devices, COVID tests, um, uh, and, and they make um, Similac, which is a, a main brand. And then you have uh, Enfamil, which is made by uh, a company called Mead Johnson, but its parent company is Reckitt Benkiser, which is a UK-based conglomerate that is mainly known for making Lysol. Uh, so it's these, these are not the main kind of uh, functions of these giant companies. It's like, yeah, and we also Change. make we also make formula that's, that that <laughs> so keeps weird. keeps infants alive. Uh, huh. Yeah, it's a, it's a little sidelight for us. It's a nice market. Um, so two thirds of all uh, baby formula in the United States is made by either Abbott or Reckitt. Uh, there's a little bit by Nestle and a little bit by a company called Perigo, which makes store brands like the generic brand. The cheap stuff. Yeah. So you want a dumb baby. <laughs> I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure, it meets <laughs> sure, all sure. FDA guidelines. Well, they're not um, a sponsor of the show. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, really, it it was the Abbott one that was the problem, right? Yeah. Because they had the the lab that had bacteria all over the place, and uh, apparently four children got very sick and two died, oh, and that's no. why there was a, a shutdown, a recall in February, a shutdown of that lab. Um, but the bigger problem is this. So about half of all infant formula is sold through something called the Women, Infants, and Children Program, or WIC. And this is a, a, a government program that allows poor families to access uh, nutrition, and uh, in particular, baby formula. And here's the way they do it. Each state has a WIC program, and they say, uh, okay, uh, because the formula, it, it's like food stamps. The, the, uh, the parents get it for free. But uh, the, the WIC programs in the states contract with one company. And they say, if, if you give us this WIC formula at a severe discount, we will uh, give you market exclusivity. In other words, the parents, uh, the families in the, that particular state can only buy that company's product oh, God. if they want to use the WIC program. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a competitive bidding process, and they go through this bidding with, there are only a few bidders, but, uh, and uh, the winner gets market exclusivity. And because that is half the market for formula entirely, what happens in the WIC market also spills over into the non-WIC market, and you have these mini monopolies in 50 states across the country, and 34 of the 50 states contract with Abbott as their one main supplier uh, for the WIC program. And what we see is that whenever a company uh, has that WIC contract, they pretty much dominate the rest of the market too. And it makes sense. Like if you're uh, the other company, Reckitt, and uh, you want to put your stuff in Tennessee, and you know that half of all people in Tennessee who are going to be buying that product can't buy your product. Well, are you going to put a lot of stuff on the shelves in Tennessee? Why if would I you? do? It's going to be the contaminated ones. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Ship it off to them. Anyway, it's going to sit there. So um, we see this. Like, uh, so California recently changed their supplier. They went from Abbott to Reckitt. And uh, prior to that, Abbott had like 95% of the, the baby food formula market in California, and Reckitt had about 5%. And then after they shifted, it totally yeah. changed. Reckitt has 90% of the market, and, and Abbott has about 5 or 10 So, uh, So we have these mini monopolies, and then Abbott 
shuts down one of its main facilities. Well, guess what happens? <laughs> In the states where Abbott was the dominant player, all of a sudden there are these huge shortages. Yeah. The, the, it's called a nationwide shortage, but the main shortages are in those states where Abbott was the dominant company. Right. Got it. So, well, yeah. So even in domestic production, we have uh, these same things plaguing us of centralization. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, even... it's, it's about the centralization of the market, really. Um, uh, you know, I mean, when you have these things that are majority made globally, you, you get other factors. You, you have to go through shipping and you have to go through some other other nodes. But the the, the whole point is, is it's kind of the same. If, if you have centralized production in one part, one, one, one factory, one plant, one part of the world, uh, and there's a disruption, a shock, whether it's a recall, whether it's uh, a hurricane, COVID, whether it's yeah. COVID, whether it's a war, uh, that disruption is going to be magnified. You're going to have bigger problems if there's a disruption there. But it's like Wall Street has decided that, that those supply chain shocks are worth the risk right. because they, they through whatever, you know, uh, their actuarial numbers dictate that those shocks are so infrequent right. and so unlikely that the good margins that they get otherwise during the good times are just worth it. There's an right? interesting analogy to um, the Ford Pinto. Hmm. So in the 1970s, uh, Ford was making this car, the Pinto, and they learned that uh, if you hit the bumper, it would blow up. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, which sounds bad for a car company, uh, but they did a secret report and they looked at this, and the report came back with this recommendation: it would cost more to retool our assembly line to make it so that if you hit the bumper of this car, it wouldn't blow up. It would be cheaper for us on the a handful of times that things blow up that we just pay off the families and 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 we you know compensate everybody that would be cheaper for us so on a cost benefit basis don't fix the Look, car that's just good business david <laughs> it's great it's the, it's the bottom line <laughs> this and is so, making me and so uh, we have the ford pintoization of the entire us economy uh, where we're going to put this risk into the system and we're going to hope that, you know, this risk doesn't happen very often and we'll handle it when it does. But overall, it's cheaper for us and more profitable for us if we do it this way. And so that's what's happened. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many examples. We talked about Boeing a little bit on our show. Which, oh, God. I mean, Devastating to me because I'm a big Boeing fan. Not the company, <laughs> but like airplanes. Right. I'm a little, you know, and I, I just love them. And I love Boeing. If but it ain't Boeing, I ain't going. It seems like a common theme in our... Yeah. I mean, uh, we did a great piece uh, last year about Boeing uh, by... Uh, by a colleague of mine uh, about it was the same kind of thing. I mean, they 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 hammered down those costs on the 737 Max, and uh, they they sort of they didn't want to uh, submit it to further testing. Yeah, and so they buried the changes in a handbook somewhere where you know the pilots couldn't find it really. And there was a culture of of um, the culture had shifted from like being. Right. Proud of the engineering and and that's right. Q QCing every last little detail to you had these people on the um, manufacturing floor culture. 
Yeah, it was just it, saying yeah. like they were scared if they raised any red flags, their superiors would be like, shut the fuck up. You're going to slow <clears throat> down. Absolutely right. Yeah. It went from an engineering mindset to a bean counter mindset. Now, I, I think I know Fucking the bean counter. <laughs> I think I know the answer to this, but it, has there been has have any corporations learned their lesson from all this yet? Have we, no, no, no. But look, look, I mean, I mean, you laugh, but but. but more than you would think is the answer. Right, because, I mean, I think for a time there was, if 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 there was a, you know, maybe a, a, some kind of climate event, they were like, oh, well, there's a shortage due to whatever. But now I think there's a lot of pain yeah. in ways they didn't yeah. quite see. I mean, foresee. what businesses don't like more than anything is uncertainty. And the fact that they can order a bunch of goods from China and have no idea when they're ever going to show up that's a lot of uncertainty. And so you are seeing shifts. I mean, they're not widespread shifts yet, but you are seeing shifts to a little more domestic production, particularly of critical goods, things like semiconductors. We're seeing more semiconductor investments in the United States Intel? for domestic production. Intel did a factory in Ohio. Uh, it's going to be a couple oh, yeah. of years Isn't for there them be to one spin in, up. In Georgia, there's too? One in Georgia, there's one in Arizona, I wow. believe in Texas. Uh, Samsung has one. Yeah, that's um, years out. But uh, Yeah, it's going to take a couple of years to actually get the fabrication. Okay, but that's uh, so good. Up. Uh, you're starting to see more of a mindset saying, instead of just in time, we need just in case. We need to be more redundant. We need more warehouse space, more of an inventory Good. that we can draw from. We love it. Uh, but, I mean, you're seeing that in the moment. But the business world tends to have short-term memories, <laughs> right? And so uh, we're actually starting to see, because there's been this shift, both because of rising interest rates and also... Uh, people moving back into the world, we're starting to see a shift away from goods and back towards services. And uh, there's a thing in logistics called the bullwhip effect. And what it means is that uh, there are a lot of people coming to the store looking for stuff. So you order a bunch of goods and you keep ordering them and you keep ordering them. And maybe you double order them just in case because you know people are coming into the store. And it takes a while for that bullwhip to cock back. It takes a while to uh, get the goods produced get them over on the ship get them here by the time they get here everybody's gone <laughs> target just famously yeah. had that in their earnings that's they right. they've got this buildup of inventory so that's the bullwhip effect so right. so suddenly you go from a supply uh, shortage to a supply glut and by the way that's a function of the uncertainty of the supply chain yeah i mean that's it's the same problem um so uh you know, in the in the event of that, now that that people are saying, "Oh, well, we have all these goods now," we're gonna have to do the, the exact opposite again. We'll have to, you know, get get back to just in time and and get rid of these warehouses and shut down the warehouse. Yeah, production. and and fire the people, <laughs> sell everything out. So, uh, the I, I do think there's been a shift in mentality, but the question is whether it will stay there. Hmm. Yeah. So as we wrap up, we're Jesus what Christ. Oh, wow. We've been here for four hours. <laughs> no, really, only only fifty only fifty minutes. But yeah, we we should. Uh, on that note, is there? I mean, let's be honest. There's no hope for any of us. But <laughs> no, no, no. Look, I in an existential I, sense, sure. we are. You know, you're older than you've ever been. Yeah. I yeah. want to. I want to say. <laughs> thanks for reminding me. Dave, one of Dave. the one of the reasons I'm such a fan of your reporting is that, like, yes, in a world that feels so hopeless. Uh, 
the reporting at the prospect can often be prescriptive and I like that. Because sometimes I get caught in those feedback loops of, you know, we, we we watch the news and, you know, we're joking here about the hopelessness and, and this awful system we've built for ourselves. But it's important to remember that you can stay engaged and there are things to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's easy to say you're fucked. I mean, that's the sort of... And also, you know, not to be conspiratorial, but that's what they want you to think. They want <laughs> you to think you're... The Jews? You're, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, I say that as a charter member. Um, uh, they They... <laughs> There is, you want to be, uh, they, they want an alienated public, right? Yeah. Uh, to not, to not act on these things, not be engaged with these things. Um, so yes, I mean, there are, there are possibilities. Uh, our next issue coming out, uh, we just dropped the cover story this week, which is called after hyperglobalization. My colleague, Bob Kuttner wrote this, this great piece about, you know, what, what is the new system going to look like? Now, that we've seen this system has broken down of the and the very stretched thin supply chain, thin supply chains, uh, reliance on unfriendly companies or yeah. countries, um, and so what does it look like after that? And there's there's a real debate happening around that, both within the Biden administration and in the business community. Good, and and so there are opportunities here, and it it does. It, it does require the public to, you know, get involved and speak out. Yeah. Yeah. We, we don't care about $5 tube socks, <laughs> God damn it. We want living wages. I'll, I'll wait five well, that's, days to that's get my tube socks. I mean, <laughs> we don't have time to talk about it, but, God. Uh, you know, it does feel like Americans maybe think of themselves more as consumers than workers. And, uh, right. And that's often... the problem. We're more than our Amazon Prime accounts. Right. right? And, and these things, uh, you know, chasing... Consumer welfare, which is the standard by which mergers are uh, are judged currently, um, uh, saying that as long as it's cheap and can get to me soon, cheap and convenient, that's all I need. Uh, that has created, in many ways, uh, the, the a lot of the crises that we're facing right now. And so we need to think of ourselves as workers, as entrepreneurs, as Small businesses and and uh, and as citizens in a democracy, uh, and the, the the our economic system needs to work for us. I mean, one thing I say a lot is that there's no such thing as deregulation. There's either regulation of markets that is done through democratic processes by representatives of the people, or you're going to have regulation in the corporate boardroom. They're, they're going to structure the market to their benefit, and they're not going to care about you. And so uh, that's the choice that we always have to make. Either either we're going to say uh, we're going to have a democratic process and we're going to regulate uh, the, these uh, economic stru structures in the interest of everybody, or they're going to be structured in the interest of Dam Jamie Dimon. Right. Joe yeah. Biden, save us. <laughs> Please, you're our only hope. Uh, he'll do it. He'll save us. Well, we'll see. Sure. He'll wake up we'll and see. But do you think he even typed that? I can't. Do you <laughs> I, think Joe I Biden can, can I type? I kept thinking about that. Who actually wrote this op-ed? It was some kid. Well, obviously, some, speechwriters yeah. do those things. But uh, don't sleep on on Biden. I'm sure he's got some burner <laughs> accounts out there. He's, <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, an online troll. Yeah, I could see him doing that. A 4chan poster. <laughs> Well, so is there anything you want to plug? I feel like I've done a pretty good job uh, pushing your- Yeah, should we follow you on Instagram? 
<laughs> I'm not on Instagram. Good for the you. Pro- the prospect is. Uh, so prospect.org, that's uh, that's the American Prospect website. We have a, a magazine that goes out in print, Dead Tree Edition, six times a year. But every day- <laughs> That's what you guys call uh, it. That's what I call it. But uh, every day there's a new- uh, new stuff at the website. Um, uh, I am on Twitter at ddayen, D-D-A-Y-E-N, uh, and uh, follow me, follow the rest of our, our writers and our staff, and, uh, uh, you know, check us out. We're yeah, never a, a dull of, moment. There's a ton of great stuff on there. Like, truly had so much stuff I wanted to talk about. There's, if you guys uh, go on there, check out, one of my favorite ones was the uh, Day One Agenda. It was one of my oh, yeah, favorite shit. things we you guys We were talking did. about that. I know. <laughs> we'll have uh, him on again. Yeah, we'll have to have you back because <laughs> that was one of the, yeah. I think, one of there the coolest pieces. But check that out if you head over to the Prospect. Um, uh, should we have him say the, th- the our, our... No, no, no. no? Okay. We'll do that. Okay, we'll do that. <laughs> we, we have a phrase, a catchphrase that oh. was born of multiple episodes, different memes. It's kill your parents, quit your job, shit your pants. <laughs> it's well it sounds like you said it so. it does <laughs> sound like i said it it makes uh, sense if you've seen all the episodes yeah. but outside without context it's a, my dad died i quit my i got my dad died i got fired and i accidentally shit myself one time a little bit so <laughs> there's some there's three things that you know about me uh so <laughs> david is that really, your dating game profile oh yeah <laughs> Put oh, that on women Tinder? just eat it up uh, <laughs> christ Thank you so much for coming by. You've been a very, very great guest. We great. really appreciate it. Yeah, thank it. you for this. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Bye, Hello, guys. everyone. This week on After Hours. I am officially a tight ass. I honestly don't even remember. What the fuck was wrong with my ass? Yeah. We've got your shit. Yeah, but can we go back to my ass? Computer? <laughs> Funny video, please. Can you Google spaghetti? Google spaghetti. Google spaghetti. And Who I- are you, my mom? Sign up on TMGstudios.tv to watch the full bonus episode.